Happy New Year. It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. This is the 13th calendar year in which an episode of this show has been published. It's great to have you listening today. In this episode, I talk with Tara Reed of Apps Without Code. We have a great conversation. We talk about her journey getting into no code, then starting Apps Without Code, growing it to a $5 million bootstrap company, actually pulling it back to between three and four million to make it more profitable. We talk about entrepreneurial mindset. She deals with a lot of early stage founders trying to get off the ground by building an MVP or an app in no code. And she sees some patterns and some anti-patterns. And then we spend a good bit of time talking about the pros and cons of no code, the amazing things it can do, and the handful of things that it struggles with. Before we dive into that, if you want to get a head start on your 2023 goals, join us for the MicroConf Accountability Challenge. The difference between crushing your goals and falling short often lies in the tiny habits and wins along the way, and sticking with those habits can be tough while you're working solo. So we're running our second annual January Accountability Challenge inside MicroConf Connect. You can head to microconf.com slash accountability challenge. That's microconf.com slash accountability challenge to sign up and get your 2023 off to an amazing start. And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Tara Reed, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to finally meet you. I've heard a lot about you. We have mutual friends, and I've been hearing about apps without code for at least a couple of years now. To get listeners on the you know on the same page, your H one of apps without code is finally launch your app idea, come up with a strong app idea, build it without writing code, and make real money with your business. So you've been public about the revenue three to four million this year. You help people build web and mobile apps. I think I got to kick it off with the question of, you know, what what made you decide to to start it? I wasn't really intentionally trying to start this business. It really sort of happened. So what happened was I was building my first company, which is the previous business before this. I had launched this art startup and I built this algorithm to match people to artwork based on their taste. And I was blogging at the time about how I had done that without writing any code. I essentially was like, let me see how far I can go, just like building something myself with off-the-shelf tools. And I kept pushing that. Like every time I was like, okay, let me just see if I can do more. I kept pushing that um, and was blogging about my journey of building without code. This was far before we called it no code or this was really cool. So this was maybe in 20. 16, I was doing this and I got invited to do a TEDx talk on building apps without code. And I just had an influx of people emailing me saying, oh my gosh, I didn't even know this was possible. Can you show me how to do this too? I've already spent $20,000, $30,000 on developers and don't have what I want. I you know, haven't had the time to just stop what I'm doing and learn how to code. And it doesn't quite make sense for me to stop what I'm doing to learn how to code because I'm going to ultimately be the business person, not the coding person. I just kept hearing that. And for a while, my answer was like, no, I can't help. I'm trying to run my business. And um, after getting more and more of those communications, I was like, okay, I'm going to help five people. So I decided to help five people launch their app. They launched it out into the world. I then opened it up again. I think like at that point, maybe like doubled or tripled the price because people had like really had a lot of success with it. And there were 70 people. And I thought, oh, wait, like, I think this is a thing. So if you fast forward to now, we have open classes and, and more elaborate sort of eight-week training programs. We've trained 150,000 people in 14 different countries, and it's been so fun. 
That's amazing. And you told me offline, I had seen, I think, somewhere on LinkedIn that you were doing $5 million a year uh, ARR. And then, and then you mentioned you deliberately pulled the business back to do between 3 and $4 million. Talk us through that decision. Well, like, I think a lot of the audience here thinks about bootstrapping, right? Like, and so we know that like top line is not bottom line, right? Like your top line revenue is not your profit margin. And so last year we did a, a handful of things to like get more profitable. One of the things that changed, and I think for change for a lot of people was just like efficiency of ads after iOS 14. And we had to do lots of like reorganization around that. So what it meant was that we changed some of our practices to operate more profitably, um, but to spend less money on ads. And so top line went down a little bit, but but profitability actually went up. And like, these are the sorts of things, like typically when I talk to people in like the VC track business space, they're like, why would you do that? Like, why would you ever intentionally pull back on revenue? But for me, like, it's really important for me and my team to be operating like a profit first business. And so sometimes you make reorganizations of things so that like the team can have the life that they want so that we can have the flexibility that we want. And so we made a strategic decision there. Yeah, and that's the beauty of having a bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped business. Oftentimes, we call them independent SaaS or independent businesses, where you are not beholden to an investor. You could have an investor, but if they don't own a majority of the company or don't have all the you know the provisions, you can make the decision that's best for you for your freedom. I know that you uh, you know talk a lot about lifestyle design and travel and such. So that's that's a nice luxury to have. How big how big is your team? My team is fifteen people, and we're in five different countries. Okay. That's quite efficient. I mean, that's a lot of revenue for only a, a team of 15. Yeah, no, it's really great. Like, I think that we operate leanly, but we also want to make sure that like we get to design our lives and our, our days accordingly. So I wouldn't say that like everybody's just like only work all the time, eight hours a week. That's not really our culture, um, but we also operate lean at the same time. And do you have, I mean, you've taught all these people to code and you also, your team builds apps for them, right? There's two different pricing structures. Like you can pay around $1,700 and kind of get instruction. Like I could pay this, right? And you would teach us how to build it. Yep. Or it's like 4,800 and you'll do that plus build the app for us, I guess. So do you have a success story or two of folks who have launched a business off you? I know you do. (laughs) Do you have a success story or 50 probably, but no, let's just, we don't have time for one or two of someone who's built a business that, you know, that changed their life in essence. Yeah, there are a ton. I I think my favorite success stories are scenarios where people take something that they know a lot about, like a sub, their subject matter experts in. And typically they know a lot about it because it's related to what they do for work. And there's something related to what they do for work that is just like hard or time consuming and like not great. So an example of this, like we have an alumni who's gone through the program who's in manufacturing, right? And like, I didn't know this, but like apparently in lots of manufacturing plants, like they're still tracking things with pen paper and a clipboard. Like, yep, is that done? Check. Like with pen and paper. Um, And yeah, everybody's got a phone in their pocket. So he built an app to streamline a lot of that process so that headquarters can really see like what's working, not what's not working, where this process slowing down. And his first customer was Coca-Cola, who white labeled this from him. So like that's an example. I can give you more examples. But the, the specific thing that like gets me really excited about like no code and the opportunity there is that people get to take something that Silicon Valley is not super excited about building a solution for. Like the non-sexy stuff is, I think, the coolest stuff. 
where other people who are not in tech know something about it. They just don't know how to code and come up with like really cool ideas that I think are less likely for us to see in a Silicon Valley based startup or, or even like a, a venture track venture based business. Yeah, and that's, I mean, in all honesty, the name of this podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us. Like it was, it fits a lot of things as long as it, you know, and a little bit cumbersome to say, originally it was around, I had a family, I couldn't apply to YC because I couldn't move there. I couldn't move to the Bay Area at the time, right? So I was saying, well, what about the rest? Like what about how many millions of us don't want to do that or aren't able to? And it seems to apply in that case as well, right? Of like, it's for the rest of us who want to start a business that, I call them boring businesses and I call it that with like respect. Most of the businesses I've built have been boring, but helping manufacturing or helping... Uh, like healthcare, yeah. Exactly. Yep. These are these great niche businesses because you don't have the massive players coming into them, right? So what, yeah, maybe maybe one more example if you can think of. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll give you maybe a few. So there's another alumni we've had go through the program. His name is Josh. He actually has this, when he, when he met us, he has this after school program where he teaches students about like music and music composition, like uh, playing music, but also sort of mixing music digitally. And schools would ask him to come do these after school pop-up programs all the time, but he can only do so many of them because he's only one person. And so he built an app that allows students to like compose and compile like pieces of music and songs together um, and work in teams. Like the teachers can give assignments and grade and all of that. So he built this custom platform for this and then licensed it to 23 schools in the state of Virginia, for example. Wow, um, that's So like, that's another example of like something you know something about that like you're, it's hard or time consuming or manual in creating product around it. Yeah, it's interesting because I when I talk to founders and what I see across MicroConf and TinySeed is that about, I believe when we did our state of independent SaaS survey, 90% of the bootstrapped, mostly bootstrapped SaaS founders, 90% of the teams have at least one technical founder, at least one developer, like nine out of 10 in essence. And some of the best combinations we see is a developer co-founder plus a subject matter expert, right? It's the subject matter expert who can then do the sales and do the customer success and do all that. With no code, low code, you can maybe get away without that developer, right? Because you don't necessarily need that. Now, maybe you need it later on, maybe you need it to get big, maybe you need it to scale. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because I, I love having you on here as a no-code expert to be able to talk about the pros and cons of it. I find it lining up with my experience of subject matter experts who have this deep domain knowledge and being able to build something that they know that they need. Yeah. And, and I think the bridge specifically to, to comment on what you were saying, where you need the subject matter expert and, and the programmer, what no code allows you to do is you're still programming, right? I, I do think, and we, we can get into some of like the limitations here. I do think you still need to have to learn the ability to think like an engineer, right? To like the, if this, then that, but otherwise this, and really be able to immerse yourself in like, if this, then that logic for some people, that's really hard. Like it's not really related to like what they do in their day-to-day -day job. So I do think you still need to like think like an engineer, at least learn to think in that sort of logical linear way. Cause you're still programming. You're not coding, but you're programming still nonetheless with no code, you're drag, drop, point, click, and then giving logic sentences of what to do. And I do think that's one of the limitations though, right? One of the limitations and downsides to no code is it, it's not no effort, right? And it's also, you still need to be thinking logically and linearly about what you want this to do because the app still can't read your mind. 
Right. It doesn't just because it's no code or low code, however we want to describe it. As you said, it doesn't make it doesn't mean no effort, and it doesn't mean it's not complicated still, right? Absolutely. Because you can Absolutely. tie together 10, 20, 30 things. I mean, a, a simple example, Scratch. I'm sure you've heard it from MIT. Like yeah. both my kids started doing that when they were three or four. One of my sons built something that was big and I won't say cumbersome, but I saw it as a, as a, I was a software engineer myself and I was like, oh my Lord, they, no, we need to re we need to refactor this whole piece. You know, it was no <laughs> code, right. but it got as spaghetti as, you know, as code can get. So there's still those types of limitations, right? I think that's right. I think like there's sort of a couple different waves of no code that have sort of come out. So when I was starting in no code in like maybe 20, 16, 2015, it was sort of like stringing together lots of different tools. Like you have your type form, which talks to Zapier, which talks to this, which talks to that. Like that was sort of the first iteration of this. And then we started to see platforms come out in a more cohesive way. The bubbles, the glides, the adalos, right? Where you can do a little bit more in one stop shop. Even still though, you can engineer your logic in a way that is really not that sustainable. Like there's still the ability to do that. I think depending on which tool you choose, they give you more or less space to have something that's not sustainable. So I think if you look at a tool like Bubble, for example, which like really gives you like a blank canvas, I would say like Bubble probably has the highest functionality capability of the no-code tools out there. There's also the highest learning curve. So if you are not really skilled at like thinking like an engineer, it's really difficult and also because it gives you a blank canvas, like there's no training wheels, there's lots of like messiness that you can engineer, right? If you look at an example that's more like Glide, there's more training wheels, you can get moving faster, there's a little bit less functionality and capability, but it's harder to engineer something that's like really unsustainable in how you built it. I'm gonna add one additional layer to this, which is that the biggest, I think, capability limit that we see with no code now is it's not so much about like how you engineered it and if that was sustainable because there's a lot of tools that give you guardrails i think it's more about limit like data limits like how much you can store and what your storage access is is it storage or is it like throughput i I, I've, i've been calling it scale like issues with scale and is it both it's both it's both so like if you look at some of the tools they'll they'll articulate it different ways. Some of them will do it as like rows of data, right? That you have access to and how many actions you can run, right? And it's some combination of those two things of your throughput and also of your like your storage. And those are the places where you run up into limits. And a lot of those limits are just like what the platform set as the limit, but those are limits. Those are limitations. I still think the trade-off of like, I got this up and running in a couple weeks, in a couple hours, is still worth the like uh, limitations you might eventually run into. I think it's still worth it to like get revenue and get going and get customers first, Um, but there are limitations. Yeah, I would agree. We have built with TinySeed and MicroConf have built, I believe it's three and it might be four. We used to call them a line of business apps. They're internal applications to run processes, right? And we used to code these 20 years ago. I was coding these from scratch in Perl, PHP, whatever. And now we needed something. We affectionately call them Pat and Vat. They are podcast Airtable and video Airtable. So obviously, you know, a platform they're built on, but they're just workflow things where I get a 
email that says a new video needs to be created for YouTube. Here's the title. Once you've created it, upload it to Dropbox, paste the link here and, you know, click it as ready to edit, right? Change the status this is all crud, right? It's create, read, update, delete is not super complicated. But the bottom line is before this, it was like Google Sheets and Google Docs. And then we moved to Notion where with the, the like the Trello interface, Kanban interface, which was fine, but it was not customized at all. So it was kind of clunky. And our producer, Ron, came on and he's not a developer, but he's a, he's, he's technical, but he's not, a, he doesn't know how to write code. And he built both of these in, I think it was like two or three weeks. And look, does it scale to as far as, as my last SaaS app could? No, it doesn't. It doesn't need to because it's internal, right? If I was building it externally, if I were to try to productize this and sell it to other people, I do think we'd run into some issues. And we could probably talk about those in a second because those are the kind of the cons that I do see around. Cons, limitations, whatever it is around no code. But I agree with you that the MVP, if I was not technical and trying to start a company, do I want to pay 20 grand? Do I want to spend a year or two learning to code and build these? Or do I want to spend three weeks, get far enough to prove it out, to make enough revenue that maybe I can then find a developer who can build it? Or maybe I can raise investment if that's where I want to go, right? Are you seeing that type of stuff play out? I'm not only seeing that type of stuff play out, but like we do that internally. So like I'll give you an example of this. Actually, this year is the first year that we started building tools for entrepreneurs and like app planning, app like thinking through sort of here are all the questions you need to think through in your apps or and dynamically show them the questions they need to plan through for things. So this is the first time of us doing that. And one of the things that we're doing is opening up our LMS because right now our learning platform is just for students that are in our eight-week training program program and we're opening that up to the public. So like this is an exact example of like how we are even using no code. So you're going to sell it as a SaaS, the platform that you built internally. Yeah, so so what's one of the interesting things that's happening with the company is like we've operated as like a a coaching and agency business and are really moving into SaaS now. Um, and a lot of that is just because we're able to like use revenue from the other side of the business to build software and it's good timing because we already have a large audience. But what I'm saying is even as we open that up and sort of open up the lessons and videos and tutorials to the public, we're going to eventually um, down the road code this just because it's going to link in with some things that like really hit up into the limitations of no code. But we're first building it without code. And we first are going to, like we already have lots of audience and traffic, so we're, we're still building it with no code. But the reason we're doing that is so that like we can get quick insights about what's working and not working and be able to feed that back to the engineering team so that they're not wasting any time. They know exactly what's working and not working by the time they get to it. And so that's that's an example of how we even use it, where we will build the first version, the first MVP, the first six months to a year of the product with no code, and then even you know, transition it from there. There used to be something called paper prototyping where you would draw out a screen on paper and then someone would click the button and then you would like put another piece of paper over it. Or or mock-ups like Figma, I believe, has click-through mock-ups, probably Balsamic as well, where it's a mock-up trying to simulate an app and you're trying to click through and get user feedback. And you're taking that really just a half step further where you're actually building it out, storing the data, moving it in and out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so before we get in, I want to dive a little more into pros and cons of no code, then talk about entrepreneurial mindset. Before we do that, though, I wanted to ask your preferred platform. Is it Glide? 
Glide is my preferred platform. It's the main platform that we teach. We've taught other tools in the past. The reason we teach Glide is the combination of capability and learning curve. I think that they they find that middle ground really well. Um, and I think there are other tools that can do more things, but the the learning curve, like, drop-off is like not as, as balanced, right? And so it's better to get people something where they can get moving and going and launching and deploying. Um, and so it's my favorite tool for that reason. Glide must love you. You're, are you bringing <laughs> them a ton of business? I mean, you, you have to be one of their biggest ambassadors. I don't know that we're tracking it, but yeah. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So let's, we've already touched on some pros and cons of no code. And the reason that I bring it up this way is we do get this question at least once a quarter, maybe every couple of months of like, I'm trying to build this in no code. What, what should I watch out for? Should I try to do this in no code? Or even there's questions that are like, I'm about to pay someone $30,000 to build this for me. And then I'll pop in with, this sounds like something you could at least build an MVP in no code. You know, even if, if you can't service a thousand customers, you can get to a point. So I want to throw out like to what I think are the three biggest positives around no code. I'm curious if you agree with them and then if there are others that you know of. But the first is that you don't need to spend years learning to code, right? It's a no or low developer requirement, which is amazing. So it's a lot cheaper time-wise and money-wise if you had to hire it out. Second is speed. We've already touched on this. I mean, if I were to hire a developer to build or write it myself to build Pat and Vat, like I just described, it would have been months of effort, no doubt. And we built it non-technical in a couple weeks. And the third one, maybe is a combination of the others, but I like to say that bootstrapping is a great equalizer, meaning almost anyone can bootstrap a business of some kind and you don't need permission to do it, right? You actually have a phrase about building your own playbook, right? You just built your own playbook because the playbook, I'm assuming the playbook's available, they weren't going to work for you. And then Bryce Roberts of Indie.bc has this phrase, permissionless entrepreneurship where you don't need anyone's permission to bootstrap a business. It is So I see it as a great equalizer, and I see if you can code, great. If you can't, maybe no code gives more non-technical people the ability to find that great equalizer. I get to work with lots of people who do code and who love using no code because they can move faster. They can like validate, like, do people want this? Will they pay for it? What are the main features that they need? And get that answer really quickly, and then they decide to go code it. So I would even say it's useful for people who do code too. Okay, so those are my three. You have others that you've thought about? I think your three are right. I, I think I would put like an asterisk on on the speed piece because I think that that getting something out there quickly or your ability not to get something out there quickly, like it's probably the biggest killer of people's entrepreneurial dreams that I see. That just you're in analysis paralysis, you never got it out, it went on the back burner, then you came back to it, like that not using your momentum, like that I think is is people's biggest downfalls in entrepreneurship, not knowing how to leverage that. And so getting something out there quickly is so important. Yeah. So I named three, but almost speed should be on there twice because it's so important, right? I mean, that's kind of it's kind of what you're saying. We'll underline I, it, yeah. Underline it, yeah. No, I totally agree. And then in terms of some of the drawbacks, before we dive in, I want to talk about entrepreneurial mindset. But in terms of some of the drawbacks that that I've seen, I mean, we already talked about scale in terms of some type of limit, whether it's the number, or the volume, or whatever. So my last company was an email service provider called Drip, and. I don't even remember the numbers, but I remember at one point we were sending 100 million emails a month. Is that right? Yeah, no, no, it was more than that. But anyways, I questioned if a no-code app could, could do that, could keep up with it, right? So there's a scale there. There are limitations on what you can build, 
right? It's within the limits of platforms because again, I don't think today you could build, I know today you could not build Drip with no code. It's just, it was a big complex app. It required custom code basically to do it. And then I think the last one that we've run into with Pat and Vat and our other stuff is the UX UI can be challenging. And, and I'm not that picky, but I'm, I'm a product guy. So I'm picky enough that I'm always like, ooh, can we change this? Because it's pretty janky. And Ron will be like, that's the only calendar widget they have. It just works that way. You know? So there's kind of that. I would have a tough time, I think, if, like, if I sent Pat and Vat out into the wild, I would almost feel a little bad of like, it's, it's great for internal. But like for having other people use it, I'm like, ooh. And maybe, maybe it's a, the fact that we use Airtable. And I, I think the UI of Airtable is not great, right? Glide's probably better. I think that's right. Okay. I think that's right. I think there are tools that give you a lot more flexibility on the UX UI, all the way to tools that give you full like blank canvas flexibility. Sometimes that's good or bad, right? Like if you have no design sensibility, like I am not a designer, you should not put me in charge of like designing the UI because I'm going to put something wild and not great. So like if you are one of those people, you actually maybe don't want one of those tools that like gives you full blank canvas. But I do think now there's a little bit more spectrum of like options that you have. I would put Airtable on like the least flexibility sort of end of the spectrum there. I would put maybe Glide on the like lower flexibility side of the spectrum, um, but not all the way there. And then like bubble on like the far, far like you, you design the UI the way that you want to design the UI. So I, I think maybe that I, I agree with all of those. I think maybe the last one, there's a little bit more options um, in terms of UI. And I think that on the second one that you mentioned about just like features that you can and can't do, there are some limitations there. I think some of this, though, is around like mindset about how you're approaching launching. My question that I usually use for myself is like, if there's a feature that is hard to do or I can't do in no code, the question that I have for myself is, will adding this make me money right now? Like right now, not like not like down the road, but like, will that change the revenue of the business or will that change the user signups of the business significantly? Usually the answer is no. If it is, I think it makes sense to look at other options. But like, you're, I do think that you're going to run into like one feature set that you want to do that's going to be tricky to build with no code. And so I agree with that second one too. Very nice. And do you have any others you think maybe I missed? Yeah, I, I would elaborate on the things that you can't do, right? So like, here are some things that like I still see are really tricky to do and hard to do with no code. If you want to build virtual reality headset software, like, I still haven't seen a good tool. I have seen good AR tools, um, um, and, and Facebook has one. There's a couple, you know, for augmented reality, but virtual reality, not great tools out there. If you want to build, I don't know, what are the things people are like, absolutely not. I do think HIPAA compliance gets tricky. Your list of resources just immediately shrinks. I think that will change long-term, but there's lots of people who are like, right, we're not going to touch that right now. What else? randomly like you know those like emoji apps where like the emoji keyboard comes in you can't alter your emojis mm-hmm. um and let me think of, like, i'm trying to think of like use cases where like not not at That's all a deep cut yeah not yeah. at all only someone who's knee deep in it like yourself would know that yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and maybe i have another list i can maybe share with you guys we can put in the comments like the list of things that we typically get they're like we can't do this yeah. at all um can't do but it. i actually yeah. think like i you would be surprised at the limitation of like the logic that you can implement here. And I just think it means that you have to choose a tool that has more flexibility. Awesome. 
Well, let's let's switch it up. Let's talk about entrepreneurial mindset. The reason it's so good to be able to talk to you about it is a you're you're an entrepreneur yourself. B you work with a ton of people who are trying to get businesses off the ground. And I think you, you know between you and I, thousands if not tens of thousands of entrepreneurs that we've been exposed to, right? And I think I want to kick it off. It's like we can go down the design patterns and the anti patterns. Like what do you see? What are the commonalities that you see in folks who come to you? And oftentimes, as you're saying subject matter expert, someone who works in manufacturing or medical, no entrepreneurial experience, I'm guessing. Maybe maybe even didn't have an entrepreneur in their family. That is me, actually. So why do some of them succeed? What do you see in them? Okay, so a couple things. First one is good fear management. Like, if launching a business was not scary, like everybody and their mama would have a million dollar business. And so it really is scary, like putting something that came from your brain out into the world for people to look at and see and judge, like that in itself is scary. And so I think lots of people are looking for it to feel not scary first and then they'll do it. And it doesn't actually work that way. It works in the reverse. You like do the scary thing anyway. And then after you do it a couple times, it's no longer scary to do like hitting publish, like like asking people to sign up, like sharing the link with people, right? Those are the things that are just scary to do. So like, that's the first thing. Like people who do well have a good ability to like manage their own fear around things. And what's interesting is episode 14 of this podcast, which was 12 years ago, is called Overcoming Fear. And of our first 100 episodes, it was the one of the most popular and it continues to get. We've actually done replays of it. And even 650 episodes later, I, I listen to it and it holds up because we all have that fear of, of launching. We have a fear of being criticized. We have a fear of looking dumb. We have a fear that no one will care. We have a fear that everyone will care. We have a fear of people's eyes on us and saying, this is great. And like a fear of success. We have a fear of fit, right? Right. So managing fear is a, that's, that's a really good one. And the reality there is like most people aren't even paying that close attention to you. Like they're worried about themselves. Like they're not like judging you that hard. They actually think in reality that what you're putting out there and the fact that you're putting something out there is really cool. Like they admire you. They think that's awesome. That's most scenarios. Another one, and maybe this is a subset of fear, maybe it's a completely separate category, is like managing a relationship with like money, abundance, success, I'll put in the category. Like this is something I think for me that was really hard. And I think I'm like just now, like eight years into entrepreneurship as a whole, like really like getting a grasp on. I think maybe some of that is like, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. Like like the idea of investing in myself felt really scary to do. Uh, the idea of like putting money into the business felt really scary. Like those sorts of things felt made me really nervous. So I think like the second thing of like things I see that make a difference for people, success or not success, is really managing that relationship with with money um, and abundance and not being in like scarcity mindset of like, I can't do this. I can't go learn. I can't go invest in myself. I can't pay for the software that I need because like there's not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough resources. That's another big one. And I actually, just to put a quick note on this, like I had to really like invest in working on this for myself. I actually ended up doing a lot of hypnotherapy to help me with this, which sounds like super woo woo. Like me several years ago, be like, what are you talking about? If I heard myself saying this, but there were lots of scenarios where just like, I didn't have the relationship with like money management to be able to like run a company like I do now. Like it wasn't there. So I share that actually. I grew up without much money and scarcity was my upbringing, right? And 
not to the point of like, we weren't homeless. I don't want to exaggerate it, but we, there were times when I was drinking powdered milk as a kid or like my mom, you know, it stuff. It, it doesn't matter that much. Solidly working class is what I often say, which is fine. And every dollar, every dollar counted, man. If I could get the socks for $2 cheaper at Costco and Target, I knew it. And I would go to Costco or if the gas was 50 cents, or not 50, 10 cents cheaper, then I would drive somewhere. The problem was at a certain point, I made a bunch of money. <laughs> like I got rich in a way that like is so, I, even me saying that sentence, feel, I feel very uncomfortable saying it, to be honest. But why is that? Because I have this unhealthy relationship with it. And I've had to work on that. And even to spend $100 on something that's worth so much more to save time for me, to hire someone to come out and replace the da on the garage door, I'll spend six hours on a Saturday. I don't anymore, but I used to because I grew up construction family and to pay someone a couple hundred bucks to do something. My wife was like, dude, you're nuts. Like you have so much, you could be with the kids. You could be doing some work. You could be, you know, whatever it is, relaxing. Like you need to chill out with that. And so I really realized at a certain point that I also had an unhealthy, uh, it was an adaptive, it was an adaptive thing for me as a kid. And even as an adult, to be honest, because we came out, school making, you know, I, I wouldn't make $17 an hour at my first job. Hey, that's great. Living in the Bay Area. Can't even afford it. We literally, tr- we're going to live in a trailer in a trailer park. Like we didn't have the money. And then suddenly I had more and more. And I, I, re- I really like this one because I, I don't know that it's talked about enough. Probably not because it seems like whining on the yacht. You know, you've heard this phrase of like, it seems like oh, a real first world problem. So much money. But it's like, even at the point where you, it, let's say you make for the first time ever in your life, you make $100,000 and that may be three times what your parents ever made or something like at that point, you should start adjusting. Now you don't go crazy and buy a Maserati, but are there ways that you can do that better? Are there ways that you can manage your money without just this tight fisted fear of every dollar? Yeah. And I think it's, it comes down to like a trust in yourself and the ability to generate more. Like, I do think that entrepreneurship really takes that, like a trust in yourself that you will be able to flow money back to you. You'll be able to create value for someone in some kind of way that you'll be able to get resources. And if you don't have that, you, you it's really hard to take risks on an idea. And so that's where I think it shows up for people. I, I like sort of the the example that you gave of like, even if you're just making like more money than your parents have made, like it still shows up. I think there's two places where I see it show up for founders really specifically. It's like the first show up of it is like, I don't want to spend money on the software tool that I need because like, I'm trying to find like a totally free way to do it. And while like, it's really good to be like tight on your, on your expenses, there's also a scenario that you run into where it's like, yeah, but like we need the tool to keep moving and to get going and to get the customers. So like, let's just do that, right? Well, we're going to be able to add value to people so we'll get back. I also see it show up a little bit later in the stage of like, but I don't want to hire anyone to help me. Like I got to find a way to like do everything myself. That's like the next sort of stage place that it pops up. And it just sort of requires a work on, on your relationship with like abundance and, and not having a scarcity mindset. So that's another thing. Makes sense. You have any others you want to throw out? Other, other adaptive qualities or even go to the, the opposite, you know, anti-patterns. Yeah. The, the anti-pattern, the last anti-pattern is like around the lack of scrappiness. So there's almost like a, if you don't have money for something, you need help from someone, you don't have resources to do that. That's fine. The inability to go, okay, how could I make this work? What if I bartered? What if I asked that person, like what they're up to in life right now and like what they need help with and found something that I could help with and they exchange, they help me with this thing that I need help with. Like that 
I think is a big one. And I think no code is a really good sort of tie-in for that. Like it, it appeals to people who are scrappy, who are like, maybe it's not gonna be perfect. Like in the scenario of, of bartering with someone, right? In an ideal scenario, you would have the payroll budget to hire them, but you don't right now. In an ideal scenario, you would know how to code or have the technical co-founder, but you don't right now. And so, or you, you know, even if you are technical, you, you would have the product already out there and have feedback on it, but you don't right now. So like, here's the thing we can do, like roll up our sleeves. And, and I think what comes with that is a comfortability with not being perfect, it not being perfect when you put it out there. And I think when people are in like full perfectionist mode, it's really hard to launch something. Even if you had a full development team, it's still, the first thing you launch is still not gonna be perfect. Um, what's that quote, uh, Reed Hoffman says, like if you're not embarrassed of the first version of your product, then you launch too late. Right. Like th that willingness to put something out there and get feedback on it and iterate over time. Like, I think that the, the reliance on everything having to be perfect at first launch is an is a anti-pattern. Big time. Better done than perfect, right? That's a that's a phrase. I actually had that on a T-shirt someone, I think, user list gave me. But I love the way the last two things you said tied in, like lack of scrappiness. It's like a lack of creativity, a lack of just getting it done, right? Just the, the inability to just get shit done when it's hard, when you don't have the money, whatever. And and maybe to jump in and do it yourself and to learn. I remember like teaching myself X, Y, Z, even though I only needed it once, but I needed it at that time, right? And I spent too many days learning it. Facebook ads was what it was actually, where I spent like an entire weekend reading all the books back in 2011. And I was being scrappy because I didn't have the money to hire a consultant. And so I just did it. Each of these has, I think, a pattern and an anti-pattern. The shadow side of that is you can't then take that too far. You get down to the point where you don't want to bring anyone in because, well, I can do everything because I'm the entrepreneur. And even if I have the money, I'm going to keep more money for myself and do it. And then, of course, that's burnout. You move slower, you grow slower, you don't, you know, whatever. So each, each of them, I think, has both sides. That's right. That's right. Well, Tara Reed, it's been amazing having you on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. If folks want to keep up with you, you are on Instagram at Tara Reed underscore. And of course, also um, on Instagram, apps without code and appswithoutcode.com. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's great to be here on this third day of January, 2023. Thanks for listening this week and every week. If you feel like you want to change someone's year, maybe send them an episode of Starters for the Rest of Us or post a link to the show on Twitter. We're at Startups Pod. I'm at Rob Walling. If you're still on Twitter, that is, by the time this goes live. It's great to be back in your ears again this week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 642. 642.